You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. All right, our, our scripture reading uh, this morning is going to be uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And if you guys want to start turning there, I also I have just one more announcement, um, and especially for people that tend to watch online. Um, this is the last week that we're going to do an online broadcast through Facebook. And so going forward, we're going to still do it, but it's going to be through YouTube only. So just uh, letting all you guys know that too, just in case, but um, you know, our, our online community as well. Um, so Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just... uh... Thank you and, and um, praise you this morning, God. Thank you for bringing each person here into this place that you provided for us to gather and worship, God. And I just, um, uh, I do think of those watching online and others that can't be here with us in person, God. I just pray that you would um, just touch them and comfort them wherever they are uh, this morning, God. Um, we pray that you bless Andrew and... and um, God, just uh, open up um, his ability to uh, just pass on what you have to say to us through him, God. And I would pray that us in um, the position of listening, God, I just pray that you would uh, give us the ability to um, eliminate distractions from our minds. God, that you would just um, uh, open up our hearts to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Uh, in, In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you, Jay. Hey, good morning to all of you guys. Good to see you. Um, I was wondering how many of you were like me, where you had to accompany your parents to work on Saturdays. Anybody have to do that? Like you were out of school, but they still had to work, and so you had to go with them. Um, I did that with my, my father on Saturdays sometimes. He didn't have to actually work on Saturdays, but he constantly decided to do that. Uh, so he, uh, he's kind of, uh, he has a very strong work ethic. But, but for a long time, uh, he ran the IT department for a, in a corporate office of a uh, grocery food chain in Houston, Texas. So I, I would go with him on a Saturday morning. We would go to this, um, think of like a, a two-story, kind of sprawling two-story, kind of TID-sized building, uh, with a large parking lot, and, and we would go in, um, and one of the more interesting rooms in this uh, building was called the computer room, right? And in the computer room was a whole room just dedicated to a mainframe computer. Anybody seen a mainframe computer before? It's like giant, right? <laughs> and so it was You'd go in, and it was kind of cold, and there'd be this buzzing going on. And My dad didn't actually work in that room. Man, that would drive you crazy to work in that room. Uh, but he would often you know, have to go there to do things and stuff like that. 
And so if this mainframe computer, like you think about all the hundreds of computers that were there in the corporate office, they'd all be connected to that mainframe and sort of through that mainframe connected to one another through these wires. Now, as I was thinking last week about talking about the topic we're going to talk about today, um, I, and I was praying to God that God would, would give me an image to help us understand a little bit more about spirit baptism. And the, the image that kept coming to mind, I was like, Lord, that's not, <laughs> you know, nobody's going to relate to that. But I, you know, maybe this is for somebody here, and I don't understand who that would be for. But, <clears throat> but the image that came to my mind constantly over and over again was this time when the corporation had to do an upgrade to the network, right? So they had to, to run all these new wires from computers to the mainframe, and it would, so there would be a stronger connection to the mainframe and then to all, all the, com the computers. And, and when I think about that, that stronger connection that had to be upgraded, this network had to be upgraded, and when you were on it, right, you were said to be on the network. Like on this wires, and part of what they did with the new hires, right, is like the IT department had to make sure that you were connected to the network. And then they did this network upgrade so there would be a stronger connection. When I think about that stronger connection, it, it reminds me of, of a theme that kind of runs its way through the book of Acts. Because part of what's going on in the book of Acts is it's telling us about this upgrade and connection between God and his people and the people with one another that came as a result of Jesus dying on the cross, but then ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And from that position, because remember what Jesus said in John, he says, I have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come. And so when he goes up and ascends to heaven from the throne, he now sends the Holy Spirit and he baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. And in that way, he brings them into his new kingdom network with a stronger connection that has, than has ever existed prior to that point. So that, that's part of what's going on in the book of Acts. Now, a couple of, I think it's maybe a couple of months now, I told you guys that I would dedicate a sermon or maybe several sermons to the topic of the, the work of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Now, I meant to do that in January. Here we are at the end of February, but that's how things kind of turn out. I needed more time. Basically, I needed more time uh, looking at these things to get an understanding myself uh, of, of what was going on. But what we're going to talk about today is Holy Spirit baptism. So, Lord willing, a week from now, we'll talk about Holy Spirit filling and, and talk about the differences between those. And there's some overlap in there. We'll talk about that. And then two weeks from now, and this will be exciting for some of you, you know, you're rubbing your hands together. What is he going to say about this? But uh, the, the um, gifts of the Spirit, so things like talking and speaking in tongues or healings and how does that relate to us today? Like those, that's two, two weeks from now. But today, we're going to talk about Holy Spirit baptism. And there's two things I want to say about it. Holy Spirit baptism, for one, is performed by the Messiah. So we don't control that. The Messiah is the one who performs Holy Spirit baptism. 
That's point number one. And then the second thing I want to say about Holy Spirit baptism is that it falls on all to make them one. On all people groups to make them into one body of Christ. So let's first think about how Holy Spirit baptism is performed by King Jesus, the Messiah. Now, something that's sort of foundational to understanding Holy Spirit baptism is something that John the Baptist said just prior to Jesus's public, when his public ministry began. So this is uh, from what Jay just read to us. I'm going to read part of Luke chapter 3 again. Actually, this statement, or at least some version of it, is found in all four of the Gospels. Right? But we're going to look at the, at the version given to us in Luke because Luke is sort of the prequel to the book of Acts. And so they kind of, they kind of go together. So here is Luke 3, uh, beginning in verse 16 now. There it says, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So in the book of Acts, as we heard Jay speaking, this comes in the context of people wondering about whether or not John the Baptist is the Christ, whether or not he's the Messiah. And the way that he responds lets us in on a little bit of about who the Messiah actually is. John's saying, I'm not the Messiah for two reasons. The Messiah is greater than I am, and he brings a greater baptism than I'm, I'm bringing. So he first says, in verse 16, going back a little bit, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, to understand this more fully, we have to consider Okay, who's saying it? And then we also have to consider what he's saying against the backdrop of ancient rabbinical thought. So let's think about who's saying it for a second. This is not just some random person. This is John the Baptist. Now, when you think about John the Baptist, think about a prophet of the very highest order, right? So Jesus of John the Baptist says this, this is in Matthew chapter 11, at the, in the beginning part of verse 11. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And that's with reference to the Old Covenant. Now, in a week or two, we're going to talk about how he finishes that sentence, and it is very shocking the way that he finishes that sentence. But for now, what we need to know is, okay, John the Baptist is basically like the best that the Old Covenant could produce. So when, you think, when he says, like, no, 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 the Messiah is greater than I am, think about who's saying it. John the Baptist is the one who's saying it. Then you have to understand what he's saying against ancient rabbinical thought. So like in the Talmud, for example, which is not a part of the Bible, it's written out, like, after the Bible, but it includes thoughts and ideas that trace its way back to the time of, of, of the first century. This is a little passage from the Talmud, and you'll see how it relates. There it says, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, or for his rabbi. 
So whatever a slave does for the master, a disciple will do for a rabbi, except the loosing of his sandal strap. So according to ancient rabbinical thought, it was like, okay, all right, you're a rabbi, that's great, and your disciple can serve you in all different kinds of ways, but they, it's too demeaning to ask them to untie your sandal strap. That's just too far. That, that's only slaves do that, right? And so what John the Baptist is saying, look, as great as you might think that I am, the best that the old covenant could produce, right? I, I still am not worthy to be a slave of the Messiah. Like, like the Messiah is that much greater than I am. Right? He's, he's, a, he's a figure of a different order, of a different kind of authority. And one of the ways in which that shows up is that he gives a greater baptism. So going back to Luke chapter 3, reading verse 16 again. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. Okay, so how about, how about the Messiah? If you skip down a little bit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he kind of expands on this idea in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when that image of the threshing floor, just so you can get a sense of what picture is being given, right? you'd have like the, the, the wheat or kernels of grain on uh, stalks, right? You would take the winnowing fork, like this big giant fork, you'd throw it up into the air. Sometimes you'd be in a pit, sometimes not. And the hope was is that the grain would fall and then the chaff would be blown away, right? So you want to keep the grain because that's what you're going to make food out of. That's what's useful. And the chaff is all blown away. So that's part of the picture of what's going on. John the Baptist is saying, look, I immersed you in water, right? But the Messiah is going to flood you with his Holy Spirit and with fire. So what John the Baptist is doing is he's making a distinction between his kind of baptism and the baptism of, of the Messiah. Now, John the Baptist's baptism was significant. It was good, right? It was a way of expressing repentance in light of the fact that the Messiah was coming, right? John is a voice. He's crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So what you were saying when you were baptized by John is you were saying, oh man, like, my life is not uh, worthy of the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm a sinner, right? I want to prepare for the Messiah coming. I don't want to pursue a life of sin anymore. And so it was a baptism of repentance. But when you compare that to the baptism of the Messiah, the baptism of the Messiah is of a completely different order because it's not just an expression of a desire. It, like, it does something. It actually accomplishes something. You, you are filled with life from receiving the Holy Spirit, right? And then you are purified. So the, the Messiah, he, as the king, right, he pours out his spirit, and that brings you into his kingdom network, and it gives you life because the spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. You are connected to the life source, which is God, but then the spirit coming in is also like a purifying fire, the same way like fire purifies precious metals, right? So you see this, for example, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. 
Remember when we were in Malachi? It talked about a forerunner that would come before the Messiah, and then the Messiah would come, and he would be like a fuller's soap and a refiner's fire. But for those who say no, right? I don't want your Holy Spirit to come inside me and refine me. Well, guess what? The, the fire of who God is is still coming. Right? And, and so the way that it works and the way that this picture works throughout the Bible is God is a consuming fire. God is going to come. So he's either going to come with you saying, yes, Lord, and then you're purified, and then he kind of burns away your sin and, and, and the old nature and all that, or it will be to you as judgment, an unquenchable kind of fire. And so what John the Baptist is saying, look, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah, but when the Messiah comes, he's going to pour out his spirit, and you can be cleansed and purified by that, or you can be consumed by that. And so there's this, there's sort of like these, it's kind of binary, isn't it? It's sort of like, okay, your options are you can be part of the kingdom of Jesus and be changed by his love from the inside out, and it will be a good thing. Uh, it'll be painful. There's painful parts of it, but it will be good in the end. Or, like, he will let you pursue your own kingdom. But here's the lie about that, right? Because Satan will have us believe you can seek your own kingdom. You can build your own kingdom. But actually, you're just in service of him, the kingdom of darkness. And it doesn't go anywhere. And so he, God, in that case, will hand you over to what you seek. Like he, he will give you what you want, and it will amount to an unquenchable fire. Like basically what you seek will become the punishment, if you will. There's sort of like this natural consequence. And we sort, of, we sort of understand this. How miserable is it when you live for yourself? And it's sort of like, um, it doesn't feel like intuitive, does it? It's like, well, man, if I just pursue myself, then I'm going to feel great. But does it feel great? Like, what's our testimony in that? Like, oftentimes, man, it just, it doesn't feel that way. And so when God hands us over, like to us seeking our own desires, it will be to us as unquenchable fire. So this first point is, the, what is spirit baptism? Spirit baptism, one thing we can say about it is that it's performed by the Messiah, not by John, but by the Messiah. And in our second point, I want to talk about, okay, what's the, the results of that? What's the result of Holy Spirit baptism, and how does that unfold in the book of Acts? So Holy Spirit baptism, we said, falls on all groups to make them one. That's the second point. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, Jesus says to the disciples, he lets them know, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, the ba John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here we hear the echo of Luke chapter 3. Right? And so he's saying, and, and not many days from now, it turned out to be about 10 days. Then they experienced Pentecost. And those disciples received a baptism of the Holy Spirit along with Jewish pilgrims, you could say exiles, who had come back into Jerusalem to celebrate the pilgrim feast of, of, of Pentecost. So they're involved in that too. 
Now, in the background of all of what's going on at Pentecost are these Old Testament passages that talk about a messianic age in which the Spirit is poured out. So like Isaiah 32, 15. These are all in your notes. Isaiah 44, 3. Ezekiel 39, 29. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following. And we remember that because Peter quoted that in his sermon in, in Pentecost. When you look at all those passages together in their, in their context, the picture that emerges is one where God is gathering to himself exiles. He brings them under the righteous reign of the Messiah. He pours out his spirit on them so that they declare the mighty works of God. They prophesy, and then he turns the desert into a flourishing garden. Right, so the, the portrait that these pictures depict are the messianic age, right, where the, the fall is sort of being reversed. So like if you think about the fall of mankind, right, it, our first parents, Adam and Eve, right, they, they, were, uh, they sinned against God, they submitted to the creature instead of the creator, right, <clears throat> and then there was a chain of events that happened as a result of that, right, they, they were sinners, they were separated, and they were exiled. Exiled from the garden. So we, we think of like the Babylonian exile. We think of the Assyrian exile for the, the Jews, right? But all that's patterned after the exile that all of humanity has already experienced when they were exiled out of the garden and entered into a, a life that was typified by separation, and death. But when the messianic age comes, all that is starting to get reversed. God begins to gather the exiles to himself under the Messiah, and then he pours out his spirit to bring unity and life. So if you, if you look at the whole, the big arc story of the Bible, there is creation, right, with, with union and life with God, the fall, where we choose, hey, we're going to build our own kingdom, right? And then separation, death, right? And then recreation in the Messiah, him pouring out the spirit of, of life again. And so you see this kind of pattern that is happening. In Pentecost is the inauguration of the Messianic age. It's like, that's the, it's the starting point of that beginning to spread out across the entire world. Because when you think about the book of Acts, what you have to understand is that it's a book of transitions. We're transitioning from the old covenant into the new covenant, and what is being created is a new covenant community. Not organized around temple sacrifice, not organized around temp, uh, um, the, the law, Torah observance or the Mosaic law, but organized around the person of Jesus Christ. The perfect sacrifice and fulfillment of all the temple sacrifices. The, the only perfect keeper of the Torah. The one who is, um, because he humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross, was elevated to the highest point in the universe, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And from that position of authority, right, he sends the Holy Spirit. And so what you have in the, in, in the New Covenant is this 
massive upgrade to the kingdom network. If you think about those wires going out from the mainframe, right, and collecting exiles and bringing that strong connection of the Spirit of God to his people and to one another, that's part of what's going on in the book of Acts. Now, one of the, the, the questions that the book of Acts seeks to answer is, okay, who belongs to Jesus' new kingdom network? Now, what the Judaizers said, and what, the, what sometimes they're called the circumcision party said, they would say, oh, that's easy. Whoever keeps Torah and, keeps, and um, takes on Jewish markers, such as circumcision, follow the Jewish dietary laws, keep Sabbath. Those are the people who belong to the Messiah's kingdom network. But that answer is different than the answer that the book of Acts gives. The answer that the book of Acts gives is says, no, no, the ones who belong are those exiled people of God that God is gathering under the reign of the Messiah and pouring his spirit out on. Those are the people who are brought into the Messiah's uh, kingdom network. And that begins in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, right? He takes the Jewish pilgrims, exiles, he gathers them, baptizes them by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit includes both Jews and Gentiles, Right? And that fits with the mission that Jesus gave the disciples. You will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Right? Yes, beginning at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem with exiles, but then even the Old Testament anticipated, like look up in Amos, Isaiah 56, 8, that they're not the only exiles. Because think about what we said about Adam and Eve going out of the garden. They were exiled out of the garden. And God is going to bring those exiles in too. So something interesting happens in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 11. There is a Pentecost remix there. Where he's bringing in Gentile exiles. So what happens in Acts chapter 10 is Peter, he's led by the Spirit to the house of who? Do you remember? Cornelius to the city of Caesarea, which is sort of like the seat of Roman governance over all of Judea. So he, he goes there. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go there first. And then there's the, you know, the blanket, the tarp, or whatever, the sheet. Thank you. can't remember the word sheet. Uh, the sheet came down, all these things. And then he, he goes, he's led by the Spirit there, and he's preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And as he's preaching the gospel, something happens. This is in Acts chapter 10, uh, beginning now in verse 44. There it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They didn't expect that. 
for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So <clears throat> the Spirit comes and they give these very obvious signs that the Spirit has come. Like, whoa, they're speaking in languages that they don't previously know. Right? And it's important for the apostle Peter to see that happen because that's how he knows. Because the Spirit coming into somebody's life, uh, it, it could be obvious, it could be not. Hopefully it becomes more and more obvious over time as you know, the fruit comes from the Spirit. But in the moment, you may not see like this great change. But the apostles need to see something there. So it's like, okay, these, these tongues, and then the apostles are like, oh, wow, okay. Because what does this sound like? What does Acts 10 sound like? It sounds like Pentecost, like almost exactly. Right? And there's a reason, because there's Gentiles there. Now, in, in Acts chapter 11, some Judaizers, they go to Peter, and they're, they're like, wait a minute, what's all this talk about you going, sharing the gospel with the Gentiles? Like, what are you doing with the Gentiles? What's all this about? And so Peter has to, imagine this, defend himself, Right? And he says this, this is Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, the Gentiles, just as on us at the beginning, right? Pentecost with the Jews, right? And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then later, in Acts chapter 15, in the Jerusalem Council. Like, this is a big deal um, for this transitional period because it's just been the Jews for centuries, right? And all of a sudden, these Gentiles are coming in and they're eating bacon and they're doing all this stuff. <clears throat> and you're like, how is this supposed to work out? And, then, and Peter's like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Like, no, no. The, the, the way that they come into the kingdom network is not... Torah observant, you know, like taking on Jewish markers, it is that they have received the Holy Spirit. I was there and I saw it, right? And so how the Holy Spirit baptism works in the book of Acts is that God is the one who performs it through his Messiah, right? And he does it with different people groups in the presence of apostolic witnesses. And sometimes they're even involved, right? In Acts chapter 8, Right? The, the apostles actually lay their hands on Samaritans, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. <clears throat> so there, now, does God need the apostles to place their hands on Samaria? Like, okay, Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit without the apostles putting their hands on them. Jews can receive the Holy Spirit without the apostles putting their hands on them. But Samaritans... You got to put your hands on them. No, no, that's not the thing. Is but the apostles have to be there. It has to be a very tangible experience for them. Because guess what? The apostles have to turn around and tell everybody else, "What? Well, how do you become part of this new kingdom network?" And it's like, well, it's nothing you do. You receive from the Messiah the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know that, apostles? And then they can just record, well, there was Pentecost, there was Acts chapter 8, there was, you know, Acts chapter 10. They didn't refer to Acts, right? But there's these things that we experienced in our life, and that's how we know. And we're the apostles, and we're, and we're letting you, now we're letting you know. So now these are, these are things that you might miss, right, 
if you are primarily looking to these passages as paradigms by which to sort of um, like figure out how to have some kind of second blessing. Like if you look at these passages primarily for that, then you're going to miss the trajectory of the book of Acts and the frame, the entire, the, the overall message and this framework of the history of salvation transitioning from the old covenant into the new, new covenant. Now, kind of to go along with this is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. If you look later in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 13, there Paul is going to explain how the unity that, that comes about as a result of Holy Spirit baptism doesn't only cross ethnic lines, it, it, it crosses whatever kind of gift you have, different giftings. It crosses um, social economic lines. All these lines mean nothing in the kingdom of God because what makes us one is the Holy Spirit, right? We have, we have in, so in the context of talking about diversity of gifts within the body of Christ, because some speak in tongues and some do not. So I just made both Pentecostals and cessationists worried at the same time, right? Some speak in tongues, some do not, but everyone is baptized by the Holy Spirit. Like if you, like Paul says in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you don't belong to the Messiah. Like that, that's just, that's how that works. Right? And it makes sense. Like, how are you going to have eternal life without the life of God coming inside of you? That's how eternal life works. So he says this in the context of talking about the diversity of gifts within the body of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. So the spirit is sort of like, quote, he's a person. But the element in which you are baptized into to bring you into the body of Christ. And he is the person that we all gain our sustenance from. That, that's how we remain alive together as the body of Christ. The way that Jesus talked about it in John 7 is sort of like this um, fountain, like takes shape inside of you that keeps flowing. And that's the Holy, the Holy Spirit that keeps us alive. And so spirit baptism connects us to the mainframe of Jesus' new kingdom network at conversion. Now, in the book of Acts, that looks a, a, like a little different because things are transitioning. But, but for now, now that we are in the new covenant, right? this Holy Spirit baptism happens at conversion. And it connects us, and it makes us one. And what it means is that our oneness doesn't have to exist. I mean, we can have oneness without sameness. It's different gifts, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes within the body of Christ. And it's actually preferable that there would be oneness without sameness because of who God is in his own being. He is a community of persons where the Father is not the Spirit or the Son. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father. The Spirit is neither the Father or the Son, and yet they're all one. 
And so that, that unity and diversity within the body of Christ is preferable because it, is, it actually reflects who God is. So part of what the Holy Spirit baptism does for us is it allows us to have oneness without sameness. It allows us to have oneness without competition. Because how did you come into the network? You did nothing. Like you, you received the Spirit. You came empty-handed with nothing, right? You, you, you submitted your job resume. It was blank. Actually, there was a rap sheet stapled on the back, right? And, and God says, yeah, that's, I want an open-handed person. Exactly. And then he pours out his spirit. And so what that means for us is you don't have to earn a spot at the table. You, you, you don't have to perform to be one among us. Right? And we don't have to compare ourselves to one another. Right? Everyone gets a spiritual gift. Did you know that? Every single person gets a spiritual gift at the point of conversion. And every spiritual gift is important. Right? And so there's no need. Like some groups are organized around a mutual despise of another group or a mutual despise of some idea. Right? But that's not the case in, in the kingdom of God. I mean, we have one enemy, right? sin, death, and the devil, but our enemy is not even with, uh, against flesh and blood. E e even, even other humans who do not yet belong to Christ, they're not the enemy. Right? So, there's no, so this spirit baptism has kind of a practical import. Right? We can have oneness without sameness. There's no longer any need for competition. No longer any need for comparison. Instead, we can experience that oneness as a result of what Jesus did. Dying in our place, being enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, and pouring out his spirit. Let's pray. Father, make us one as you are one. And do so by your spirit. Open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus and his gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.